as we've gone through this series, something has kind of come up in my mind, and I've wondered about it for a while, and I think I've figured it out. But I was wondering why it is that we think of messes from our past that were so painful, so expensive, so disgusting, <laughs> and they were so miserable to go through in the moment. But today, as you think back on them, or perhaps as you tell the story of them, you always say it with a smile. There's always laughter involved when you think about the, the, the messes from your past that were so painful and miserable in the moment. And I think the reason for this is because we all love a good story, and as we know, every mess has a story behind it. Now, I told you guys a story a few years ago. I know that not everyone heard it, so I just want to kind of give you the quick version of a mess that happened several years ago that when it came to this series, this series would be incomplete if I didn't tell it to you. So it was four or five years ago, and my family was at the beach, a local lake, and my kids found some adorable snails. Not sure why they were adorable, but they put them in a bucket and decided that we needed to bring them home. So we had some lake water in a bucket. We brought the snails home. And after a couple weeks, we decided, you know what? The snails will be happier in their natural habitat. So it was a Saturday. I was preaching that weekend, which means Saturdays, I'm in my office all day getting ready for the weekend services. And uh, Amy and the kids are in the minivan getting ready to go back to the beach with the snails in a bucket. And they put the bucket in the back seat of our minivan, and one of the kids accidentally tipped over the bucket. The snails came out. They didn't just come out of the bucket. They came out of their shells because they were dead and rotten. And to make it even better, one of the snails somehow slithered down between the cushions in the back seat where it was inaccessible. And the smell was horrendous. So as I think back at that story, I can say it with a smile now, but I was not smiling when I looked at our minivan, and more than that, when I smelled the minivan. Now, we have since gotten rid of the minivan, not, not because of the, the um, snails. We got rid of it because it's a Dodge. That's a <laughs> different, different story. But as I think back to that day, it's so memorable because there's a story behind the mess. But more than that, as I think back to the story and the different messes that come up over the years, it's not just that there was a story building up to the mess, because right now the story that I just shared with you is incomplete. What you're wondering right now is, yeah, you, you came and you saw the mess, but what happened next? Like right now, the only thing that matters is I have a smelly minivan with snails in it. And really, everything that led up to that doesn't matter very much. What matters isn't so much the story behind the mess. What matters is the story beyond it. Every mess doesn't just have a story behind it. Every mess also has a story beyond it. And I wish I could tell you that I was an amazing father and husband that day and that with a smile on my face, I served my family without a selfish thought in my mind. But truth be told, I was anxious. I was already anxious because I was getting ready for services and I had a lot to do and now this on top of it and my kids were getting out napkins to clean up a snail and I'm like, you can't get out napkins. So what I did was, I didn't say a word, first of all. That's kind of my anger mode is I don't say anything. But I, I got the hose brought it into the minivan, and just hosed down that back seat, and the snail just slithered right through. It was disgusting. And 
I did the best I could. I walked back to church. I think I must, must have showered after that. But what happened beyond the story was kind of an eye-opening experience for me too. Because usually what happens beyond the story isn't so much about the mess. It's about you. Well, today we're wrapping up a series called Address the Mess. And we've already looked at so many different aspects of this. And this, this series could go on for a year, just telling all the stories of messes and what we can learn from them. We've already talked in week one about how the greatest mess we need to address isn't the person next to you. It's not the world around you. You are the messiest person you know. The greatest mess is within that we all need to address. And then week two, Ben gave us some real practical tips about how walking in step with the Spirit will help us to minimize, to negate the messes that we cause and will work against that sinful nature within us. And today, as we conclude the series, what I want to do is help you into the future. Like I, I had to help myself this last week. I speak to you not as a one who has mastered this by any means, but as you look into the future, at the future messes that you will face, I think it's easy for us to get stuck in the story behind the mess. What I mean is this, when you encounter a mess that's not your own, you come armed with questions and accusations. Who did this? Why did you do that? How will we avoid this from happening again? You, you come because you're so fixated on what's behind the mess, but you can't really see beyond it. What I want to do today is share with you the story of a man who understood this so well. He was caught in the middle of a mess. Actually, we're going to look at two people. Two people who were caught in the middle of a mess. One was stuck in the story behind the mess, but one, one had the wisdom from God to see the importance of focusing on the story beyond it. And at the end of the message, I'm going to ask you a question. What's your story? What do you want your story to be? To be stuck on the story behind the mess or to focus on the story beyond the mess? Because here's what I know, here's what you know too, that when it comes to the greatest messes of your past, no one really cares about how they were caused anymore. What everyone remembers is how you acted beyond it. So the two people we're going to look at today are, first of all, King Saul from the Old Testament. This is about 1000 BC. King Saul was the first king of Israel. And as we're going to see, he created a pretty big mess. And I won't say any more because we'll get into what that was in a moment. But the other person, kind of the highlight of the story is David. He's really the focus of the story that we're going to look at. <clears throat> and there's an amazing mess that David has to navigate. And if you know anything about David from the Bible, you know that he went through a series of messes. But we're going to focus just on one of them, 1 Samuel chapter 24, which, by the way, is a remarkable chapter of the Bible. I'm only going to hit highlights of it, so I hope that you have time this week to go home and read it on your own or listen to it on your favorite uh, Bible app. But we're going to look at David and a mess that he had to navigate and how he looked beyond the mess, not just at the story behind it. And kind of the backdrop for 1 Samuel 24 is that David had already been anointed to be king. It was so unique because David was basically anointed by God to be king of Israel when he was like a teenager. And it wasn't like an immediate thing where he would become a king overnight, but God basically said, you will become king, but there's already a king named Saul. And David had to wait years and years and years and years until finally his time to become king would, would, would come. 
What happened, many of you know this, what happened with David in the meantime is that he became wildly popular. Uh, It started when he faced off against a giant named Goliath and uh, defeated him, you know, this short teenage boy against this giant, nine-foot giant in battle armor. People were like, who is this and and what has he done? And as as David went on from there, he basically got a fast track through the Israelite army ranks. Uh, He became commander of a commander of the Israelite army, and he was wildly successful to the point where one day people came up with their own theme song for him. I don't know how the tune went. I'm sure it was catchy, but the lyrics went like this. Basically, they said, Saul has killed his thousands. King Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. David is 10x what King Saul is on his best day. They, they, they recognized his success, and David was wildly popular. And here's where we're going with this. This is why this is important. Saul was madly jealous of this. Madly is an understatement. He was going insane. There were at least two occasions where Saul tried to kill David, his best military commander. He tried to kill David by throwing a spear at him. And luckily, David was able to dodge and dive and dip, duck. He, he, he got away from the spears. And there was, as it progressed, even, even though David was his son-in-law, Saul finally got to the point where he basically pushed David out of the kingdom, but then Saul took the one thing that David didn't have, which was the Israelite army, and he went to pursue David to try to kill him. Saul enlisted the Israelite army to go on a chase to try to get rid of David, all because he was madly jealous of him. Saul felt threatened. And here's the point. Here's the point. Saul was stuck on the story behind the mess. The mess was, here's this army commander who somehow there's talk of him becoming king and all the people love him. This is a mess and Saul could not see past the story behind the mess. He just knew that David was a mess that had to get, he had to get rid of, and he could not see anything beyond that. But what we'll see in 1 Samuel 24 is that David had a different view. He could see the story behind the mess, but he chose to live in the story beyond it. And this had a very different um, impact on these two different people and how they chose to live. So in 1 Samuel 23, Saul has the Israelite army, it's, it's kind of funny to see it. I, if, if you have time this week, read 1 Samuel 23 too because it's, it's real cool. Um, Saul has the Israelite army on one side of a mountain and David is on the other side of a mountain. David has about 600 men. Saul has the Israelite army. They're kind of chasing each other where um, Saul is starting to catch up and it's only a matter of time until the Israelite army overtakes David and his men. But at the last minute, you couldn't write this better. At the last minute, Saul gets word that the Philistines had come into Israelite territory and they had to be dealt with. And so Saul takes his army back to Israel to fight against the Philistines. And then chapter 24 is where we pick up. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. And apparently the people in En Gedi didn't necessarily like David and his 600 men What we see in chapter 23 and 22 is that there were some spies who, whether they didn't like David or they were just looking to be on the good side of the king, 
they were ratting out where David was. And so as soon as, Dave, as, soon as Saul comes back, he's told the intel, David and his men are here in En Gedi. And I, I didn't put a map up, but you can Google this. It's, it's out there everywhere. Basically, En Gedi is just west of the Dead Sea. It, it's not that far from where the headquarters for Israel is. So it's not like it's that far. It's, it's reasonably close. But here's where you see two different mindsets at play. Here's what it does to Saul when he's so focused on the story behind the mess. Here's, here's what he did. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel. Just, just let that sink in. He just came from pursuing their known enemies, the Philistines, which was a nation that they had always had conflict with. And now he's out to get his, his political rival. And so he sends out word over all Israel, give me your best young, able-bodied men. I need 3,000 for my special forces team because we have a special mission to carry out. He was so consumed by this, and it gets it gets better. He set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats, which I know sounds like an Irish punk band. <laughs> They're actually from California. <laughs> the word crags literally means stones. In some translations, it's translated as cliffs. Basically, the, the way to describe this place is what it looks like and who lives there. Huge cliffs that only wild goats live on. It's this barren desert area. And another defining characteristic is there's all sorts of caves everywhere, great places to hide. And so Saul says, if he's in that area, and if I were him, this is where I would be. And one commentary I looked at this week was really interesting for me because the commentary was written by someone who has actually visited this place, which I have not. Here's what the commentary said about it. Nothing but the blind infatuation of fiendish rage could have led the king to pursue his outlawed son-in-law among these craggy and perpendicular precipices. I just wanted to say that too. <laughs> where were inaccessible hiding places. <laughs> in other words, Saul is pointing up in the cliffs what about there? Is he there? And the men are like, we can't even reach that. How could they be there? Much less us check where he's at. He was so mad with jealousy. He was so focused on the story behind the mess that he couldn't see rationally beyond it. And here's something that also struck me from this, something that I think we can all learn from today. I know this series is about us addressing our own messes, but sometimes there will be people in this world whose personal messes just spill out for the rest of us. What, what we see here is that Saul's personal mess became a mess for many people, a mess that many people had to deal with, from the people who had to bring together 3,000 uh, young men for a special forces team, uh, to, the, to the men who had to go out to this desolate area and search every nook and cranny for where David and his men might be. This was a mess for everyone, especially David. Just imagine this. You're anointed to be king, but the king wants to kill you. You have 600 men with you who have given you their best, but you can tell they're running thin. 
And now here's a special forces army of 3,000 men coming toward you, and you have to navigate this, not just for your own personal emotional wealth, but you, in a sense, have to shield those who are closest to you from this other person's personal mess. And I wanted to bring this up because I think some of us in life have to play this role also. Someone's personal mess is, is causing them to, to completely be blind to the, to the story that was behind the mess. And, and now you or I, we, we have to shield the people who are closest to us from what is going on. And it can be a difficult thing to manage. This will happen in your life eventually. It will happen that people just have a mess that they haven't addressed, and it will spill out to people around you and also to you. And maybe there will be a person that's kind of like with Saul and David, where it's especially difficult for you. And so what I think we can learn from this is what David does next. It's this incredible, what we would call, opportunity. But before we get there, there's this one final thing. I I promised myself I wouldn't make a joke about this. There's one more thing that comes up that just shows us just how much Saul's mess keeps piling up. That's all I'm going to say about it. Uh, 24 verse 3, he came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And younger Matt would have giggled here and said inappropriate things. I'll just talk about the sheep pens and the cave. The, the way this was set up is there were so many caves in this area, and they would put rows of stone in front of the mouth of the cave so it would form a natural sheep pen in, in a way. And shepherds could bring the sheep in. There's only one way out, and it's blocked. And so it was real common for shepherds to use this back in the day which is interesting that David would choose this as a fortress location for him and his 600 men. So Saul is traveling through here. He sees one of these many caves, and he decides this is the one and this is the time. And so he went in to relieve himself. But here's the interesting part. David and his men were far back in that very cave. Now, not all 600 of them, what seems to have happened is that they saw Saul coming because they had a good view of the area, they had elevation, they could see what was going on. So what seems to have happened is David split up his men, they all went in different caves far back until the coast was clear. But Saul happened to pick the one that David and his men were in, his closest men. And just picture this. Here is the one who has caused such a mess, now completely vulnerable in front of you. This is how it happens sometimes in our lives. There's an injury to you. Then there's a vulnerability of the person who caused the injury. And then there's an opportunity to do something to them. An injury, a vulnerability, and now an opportunity. And this is what David's men see so clearly. Clearly, the, the men said to him, this is the day the Lord spoke of this. God was thinking of this precise moment when he anointed you king of Israel. He said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, I looked into this. It doesn't seem, at least that we know, that God specifically told this to David at any time. But they, they were kind of taking their own, uh, own ideas and kind of adding it to what David had, had been thinking. But How could this be anything but what had happened? Here's your enemy, the one who has caused such a great mess in a vulnerable position. This is it. David, if 
if you don't pull the trigger on this, when will you? And so here's what David decided to do. David crept up unnoticed and cut off Saul's head. (laughs) He only cut off a corner of Saul's robe, actually. Just the corner of the robe. And what's interesting is the reaction that David has in response to this. He could have killed him. He could have done anything, but he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And after this, it goes on, after this, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And I thought, why would he be bothered so much about this? And here's, here's why. In that custom, the king's robe was symbolic of his kingdom. In fact, some prophets, as they wanted to symbolize a kingdom being taken away from a king, they would take a robe and break it up into pieces, symbolizing that the nation would be shattered. By cutting off a a part of his robe, David was assaulting the king of Israel. He was being aggressor, not just to the king of Israel, but to the one who anointed him king of Israel. David knew this more than anyone. The king was a king because God chose him. God anointed him just as David was anointed. And David knew, David knew. This was not something he should do. I think a modern application for this is a real easy one, a typical one. You know, if you work for a company and you actually still go to work in person, which I know was like half of us, but back in the day when you actually went into the office, you know, Father's Day is coming up. You got a Father's Day card. You want to get it in the mail. Shoot, you forgot a stamp. Well, you're in the office. You know, is it, is it wrong to take like a 50 cent stamp and just put it on your envelope? And is that wrong? I don't know. What if it's a package, like, you know, a $2 package, a $10 package? What if your boss has been really mean to you and it's just a horrible environment and now you have an opportunity to take some inventory that hasn't been touched for a while, but it'd be really fun to have? As you think about it, you know, the question is, at what point is your conscience starting to tell you this is wrong? And for David, the threshold was very low. He had assaulted the king of Israel, not just a king. He didn't respect the man necessarily, but he did respect the rank. Here's what we learned from David. When, when you've been injured because of someone else's mess, and when they're vulnerable, you will see that as an opportunity to get rid of your mess or to address your mess. But what I know and what we've all experienced is that when you simply react emotionally, or let your instincts take hold, it might get rid of the mess that you had, but it will create a bigger one. I put it this way. Instincts can get you out of a mess, but they usually just create a worse one, or a worse two, or a worse three that you now have to deal with. Like, man, I really, use a silly application or illustration of this, Um, man, I really taught my kid how to not make a mess on that counter. I yelled at them. They know not to make a mess. I addressed the mess. But now I've got a different mess to deal with. Our instinctual reaction to the messes that impact us, they might address the mess for a moment, but quite often they just create more. And David recognized that if he were to not just cut off part of his robe, but cut off Saul's head, this would have fixed the mess immediately. Just picture David walking out of this cave 
with the head of Saul and the robe of the king of Israel over his back, with a 3,000 man army ready to serve the new king. This, this was an opportunity that would have fixed every problem and addressed the mess. But David knew it would just create a bigger one. On what grounds then is there a king of Israel? To whom do people answer if they do this to the king, to the Lord's anointed? And that's what David focuses on next. He has addressed this mess for himself, but now he has to bring it to other people. Um, let's keep moving. First Samuel 24, verse 6, David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, in case you missed it, guys, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He's chosen by God himself. How dare I do this to him? And then it goes on. With these words, he sharply rebuked. The Hebrew word here is like he tore them apart. He ripped them apart with his words, and he did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went out on his way, completely oblivious to what had just happened. I wanted to pause on this verse because David didn't have time to set up a TED talk. <laughs> like, here's 10 reasons why it's not good to inflict pain on your enemy. You know, he could have come up with all this wisdom for them, but instead he was speaking from his heart. He had principles deep within him that he was simply speaking from. And it all came down to this. The king is the Lord's anointed. I have no say in when he leaves that is God's decision. That was his principle that he was speaking from. And so when you want to address a mess, it's not good to react with instincts, but what we see David do is he reacts with godly principles that are already rooted in him. But here's how the story ends. We don't have time to do the whole thing. Again, read this chapter this week. I, I, it, it's really cool. So then David also went out of the cave and he called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. He gets Saul's attention and then David shows him an act, a gesture of respect. He gets down on his hands and knees. He, 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 he acknowledges the honor that is due to the king of Israel because the king of Israel is the Lord's anointed. He shows him respect, but then David tells him the truth. He says, who told you that I was out to get you? Here's the corner of your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And for, for six, seven, eight verses, Paul lays into the king of Israel, sharing the truth of what this messed up man needed to hear. Saul, you are so consumed by, by the story behind your mess. But I'm looking beyond it. And at the conclusion of this, Saul wept. Not just a little tear down his face, but he wept in a way that his army and David and David's men could all witness. He wept aloud. He said, you are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but now I have treated you badly. I know that you will surely be king. And I wish I could say that that was the end of the story and David just became king because Saul stepped aside. But Saul's focus on living in the story behind the mess would continue. He would continue to be messed up in his mad jealousy. And this all repeats itself in just a couple of chapters in 1 Samuel 26. 
Saul didn't change, but David still had to speak the truth. And what I see, one more thing remarkable about David is even though there was so much mess being thrown at him, Saul acknowledging that David is right, but then Saul, a couple chapters later, trying to kill him again. Saul, David had to go through so much mess. It would have been so much easier for David just to let go of this whole king thing. Like, can I just be a shepherd again? The sheep love me. <laughs> They're great. How about a different kingdom? Can I just go rule a different place? Maybe a, an island, you know, somewhere? With He could have abandoned his calling. But here's what I find amazing. He didn't abandon his calling because of someone else's mess. He held to his calling, even though it would have been so easier to let go of it. And here's where I think we should learn something from this, this too. Number three, don't neglect your calling or your callings by how you respond to someone else's mess. Um, a calling could be your, your, your father, your mother, your son, your daughter. It could be part of your job, your vocation. There's all sorts of different callings that God has for us. Have you been neglecting a calling because someone else's mess has been making it inconvenient? Or you've let someone else's mess allow you to be focused on the story behind it? It's, it's easy for me to neglect my callings when I respond poorly to the messes of other people. Which for me, I find great comfort in knowing what Jesus did in response to this. He did not neglect his calling. It was a big calling. The son of God to come into this world, to handle the world's mess and to be punished for it so that we could have peace with God. That, that was that was amazing. But on top of that, there had to be a mess to sort through the mess. The mess of the cross and the suffering and the death. Yet he did not neglect or abandon his calling in any way because that's his love for you. So what I want to acknowledge is that we don't always get this right. I have not gotten this right. None of you have always gotten this right. There have been times in life when we have focused so much on the story behind the mess, we've been filled with frustration and anger or jealousy, and it has had some bad results. But that is not who you are. You're forgiven. And now Jesus opens up for you an opportunity to look beyond. Not be defined by what caused the mess, but see the opportunity of who this allows you to be. So, every mess has a story behind it. And every mess has a story beyond it. I told you I was going to ask this. What's your story going to be? My hope for you is that going into the future, you can be in a position to be able to address the messes of this world in a way that you know what your story is. Sometimes we need a moment to look at the story behind the mess, understand where it came from, but then to see the bigger picture, that the more important thing is what happens beyond it. So what I hope for each of you today, number four, is to live for the story beyond the mess. Live for the story beyond it. And I have three things here as we wrap up that will practically help you to do that from this day forward. Three things that I see from David. Number one, Accept that messes will happen. 
You can't avoid them. They will come into your life. It will not be a surprise. It should not be a surprise when messes come into your life. We just have to accept and prepare because once you accept that something will happen, then you will be ready to prepare for it. So accept that the messes will happen and anticipate how they will make you feel. Oh, for me, it's as simple as a little bit of milk on the counter. And ah, you, does anyone else feel that? You know, the kids, you know, splash their milk everywhere. No matter how often you tell them, there's that splash on the counter. It's just, oh, that, there's that inner tension for me. I don't know what it is. Clean up the counter. There's that feeling of anger, nervousness, anxiety. I don't know what it is. But anticipate the messes that will come into your life. What's your instinct? Anticipate how they will make you feel. And if you can, could you pre-process some of that? And say, yeah, it makes sense that I'm angry, but I don't have to dwell on the story behind the mess. Here's the last thing. Look beyond it. Align your story with God's callings for you. Live beyond the mess. See the bigger picture that God has something so much more important for you to do than to lay blame for why a mess is there or to live in the anxiety or the anger for why that mess exists. <laughs> but we get to see such a bigger picture. You've been forgiven of where it came from. Now follow the calling, the opportunity that this lays open for you. It was so good to go through this series with you. I hope that if North Cross has made an impact in your life, you can come back next week. We're gonna have a special um, message next week and it's gonna be all about how if, if we've made an impact on your life, we wanna invite you make an impact for the people in your life too. So we'll talk more about that next week. For today, we'll close with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the wisdom that we see in scripture of th looking through these lives of real people who had real messes just like we do. I, I find it amazing to see the, the two models set up for us with Saul and, and David and how they both had their own messes that they had to address, but how they landed on different sides of how to deal with them. I think for all of us, sometimes we relate more with Saul and we, we find the anger and the frustration welling up because we can't get past the story behind the mess. But I pray for you that as a result of having dug into this wisdom from you, that we would be in a position to be able to face the messes of our future and to do so in a way that looks beyond the mess, to see how your callings for us aren't negated by the messes of other people, but rather it's an opportunity for us to simply focus on what you've called us to do. This won't be easy, it won't be quick, but I pray that it would be done for your glory in a way that reflects Jesus' forgiveness to us. It's in his name I pray these things, amen.